Today we are going to finish the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And as I was preparing through this glorious chapter, something really interesting struck me. And that's that I think that the entire chapter actually follows structurally a teaching on the threefold office of Christ. My hope is that you've memorized this office by now. I've, I've brought it up as many times as I've, the text has allowed me to, which has been a lot. But just as a reminder, the threefold office of Christ is essentially what we believe it means to be the Messiah. What it means to be the Christ is that Jesus came to fulfill the authoritative roles, what we call an office, three important roles that were established in the Old Testament to govern God's people. And that was the office of the prophet, the office of the priest, and the office of the king. Christ came to be all three, our prophet, priest, and king. We call that his threefold office. And John, I believe, established early on something we've already covered, that Christ is our great and final prophet. He is the one who, as a prophet does, reveals God to us. He said this when we covered in the prologue, verse 18. Speaking of the Son, you recall, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There was a huge emphasis in the early part of John that Jesus Christ came to be the revelation of God. He came to be the great and final prophet. Last week, we explored this idea that Christ is the priest. John made this clear when he referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The priesthood was established in the Old Testament to, at least on a ceremonial level, they couldn't actually do this, but on a ceremonial religious level, the priest's job was to offer a sacrifice that removed the sins of Israel. It forgave the sins of Israel. The priesthood was established to deal with sin. And so when Christ comes and takes away our sin and takes away the sin of the world through an offering, through a sacrifice, he proves himself as the great and final high priest over the house of God. And so that leaves us with one final office we have to talk about. So today, we get to focus on Christ as King. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 1, if you haven't already? We are going to read a longer section, verses 35 through 51 together. I will ask you and invite you to stand when you are there for the hearing of God's Word. John chapter... 1, verses 35 through 51, thus saith the Lord. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Christ is now in the very early stages of his public teaching ministry, and that began with gathering his famous 12 disciples, 11 of whom would eventually go on to become apostles of the Christian church after Christ's ascension. And it is through this very early encounter with Jesus' early or new future disciples that they teach us through their encounter with Christ that he is to be thought of as our king. Now, in order to do this, the text first has to establish what we've sort of already known and been implying, but now it's explicit. Before we can talk about Christ as king, we have to establish that he is, in fact, the Christ, that we rightfully call him Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Read verses 40 through 42 with me again. The first passage established this. One of the two who heard John speak followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here, the two disciples of John... It, well, let me take a step back. So two disciples of John the Baptist followed Jesus. Right? Uh, one of them is named and one of them is unnamed. We are told the named one is Andrew. Uh, the most likely option for the unnamed one is that it is John, the author of the book of John. Um, so most likely this is the Apostle John and the Apostle Andrew. And they begin to follow the Christ because they were disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has done his job and said, you are no longer my disciples, go be his disciples, right? And so they go to follow their teacher. They go to follow this rabbi that Jesus called the Lamb of God. And Andrew is on to something. He's been catechized by John the Baptist well. He understands that this Jesus is much more than just a rabbi. He thinks Jesus is the Messiah. And he tells his brother that. He goes and he finds his brother, Simon. He says, I think we found the Messiah. And John, if you remember, he's writing to a largely Greek audience. So he helps them out with some of these Jewish terms. You noticed the, the word rabbi, he reminded them, by the way, rabbi just means teacher. And when John says we found the Messiah, he reminds them, or when Andrew said that, John reminds them, by the way, the Messiah and the Christ are the same thing. So they, Andrew thinks he's found the Christ, which is the Messiah, and he goes and he tells his brother Simon, who we more notably know as Peter, but there's a relationship between the Christ and Peter's name change. And John is doing this intentionally. He, he couples this in his narrative together intentionally. So, so Andrew says, I think this guy's the Christ, he brings his brother Simon to him, and Jesus, upon meeting him, says, I'm going to give you another name. You're no longer just Simon, you are now Peter. Now, here is where, where Jesus officially gave Peter an additional name. But it's not until later on in his ministry that he explains why he did this. 
And you will see, when we look at that, the relationship between Peter's name change and this important principle that Jesus is the Christ. So keep your marker here, but turn to Matthew chapter 16. Peter's name change is supposed to be a symbolic reminder to all of us that Jesus is the Christ. Every time you think of Peter, you should think that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 13 through 18 together. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's stop there. So this moment in Matthew, again, this is not when Peter receives his second name. The text doesn't say that, by the way. Jesus is explaining, here's why you're Peter. And the reason that might not make sense to us is because we don't know Aramaic. We don't know what the word Peter means. But it will help you to know that the word Peter essentially means an Aramaic rock. So Jesus says, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. So here in this moment, Peter sort of becomes the foundation of the Christian church in a sense. He becomes the rock that the church is built upon. But what does that mean? What that means, and what many of the early church fathers all attested to, is that Peter's person is symbolically the rock. But truly, what Peter as the rock is supposed to point us to is the confession that he made. It's Peter's confession which is actually the foundation of the church. And Peter sort of stands there symbolically. So every time you think of Peter, you're supposed to think of rock. And when you think of rock, you're supposed to think of what the church is built on. And what is the church built on? It's built on this chief confession that Jesus Christ is not just some good moral teacher. He's not just some really awesome historian. He's not John the Baptist. He's not a prophet. He is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the confession that Christianity, that's what the Christian church is built upon. It's our chief confession. Christianity obviously believes in many things. We believe in many more things. But the primary thing that separates us from all of the world religions is that we confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the eternal Son of God. Christianity will stand or fall on that confession. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That is the foundation of the church. And Peter is there symbolically as the first one to fully embrace and voice that with all of his heart. So let's turn that back now to John. And so you see why John paralleled these two things. Andrew says, hey, hey Simon, we found the Christ. And then Simon meets Jesus and he says, by the way, you are now called rock because one day you're going to be the chief confessor that I am the Christ. You're going to realize what Andrew said is true with full conviction not long from now. I am the Christ. And so Jesus now has three disciples, John, Andrew, and Peter. And they all suspect, they all have good inclination here. We think this guy is the Messiah. 
And so the second part of our passage then elaborates when these three men heard the word Christ, when they heard the word Messiah, what came into their heads? What does it mean to be the Christ? Now, obviously, again, we have the benefit of a completed canon, Pentecost, the full revelation of the apostles. So I'm not saying that they had a full-fledged understanding or that we should only limit ourselves to what they think. But John definitely wants to emphasize a key element that they did get right. There's much more to being the Christ than they understood at this time, but they did understand one thing very clearly, that to be the Christ meant royalty. The Messiah was supposed to be a king. He was supposed to come as a king. This is made very, very explicit on the lips of Nathanael. Read verses 47 through 49 with me. Jesus saw Nathanael coming and coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Let's stop there. So the next day, Jesus gathers three disciples. The next day, he goes into a new region, a region of Galilee, which was both a city and a region. So this is the region, not the city. And he calls a man named Philip to be his disciple. So now he has four disciples. And Philip, following in Andrew's footsteps, says, I got to tell my friends about this guy. So he immediately runs and finds his friend Nathanael, who, by the way, is primarily known throughout the New Testament as Bartholomew, right? So the apostle Bartholomew and Nathanael, they're the same person. You'll find in, in, the old, in these days, people had lots of different names. Like Peter's dad is referred to as both John and Jonah. Peter is Simon. Peter, it was very common. Nathanael, Bartholomew, same person. So, uh, Jesus' disciples, right, they're, they're continuing to spread. They're continuing to tell people, hey, I think we have found the Christ, the one who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, as Philip says. But Nathaniel takes a different route than Peter. He's skeptical. He's, he's not so sure because he knows that the son, the Jesus, comes from Nazareth. And uh, Nathaniel tells us the reputation of Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Certainly not the king of Israel. Nazareth is not a town fit for royalty. Nothing good comes from there. There's no way the Messiah is coming out of Nazareth. So sorry, you've got the wrong guy. But Philip tells him the proof is in the pudding. Right, just come and see. You don't have to take my word from it. Just come meet the guy. And you'll see. And it does. Nathaniel approaches Jesus and Jesus demonstrates right away that he's more than just some rabbi from Nazareth. Jesus tells him something about his own heart. There's a lot of information here we don't know, but what we can generally gather from this text is clearly uh, Nathaniel had some kind of reputation in the community. He was a good and honest man, a man of no deceit. And Jesus somehow knows that. Something that you should have to get to know the guy to know. Jesus knows without getting to know the guy. It's like Jesus can almost, I don't know, see his heart. So he's coming, this guy he's never met, and Jesus knows his heart intimately. Jesus shows him, I know you at a deep level. And Nathaniel takes, how do you know me? And then Jesus takes it to another step. Not only do I have a divine understanding of your heart, I have a divine understanding of all things so that I can tell you where you were earlier when I wasn't even in the region. I saw you, 
That's called omniscience, a divine ability to be everywhere present, to see all things. I was with you when I wasn't even here. I saw you under the fig tree. I saw what you were doing before you were called. And so these two, you could call them miracles, demonstrations of divine power, bring Nathanael to his knees. And he realizes Philip was right. Andrew was right. This guy's not just a rabbi from Nazareth. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. And he immediately tells us, what, why is that good news for the people of Israel? Why is it good that someone be the Christ? Because what does that mean? That makes him what? He says, the King of Israel, the end of verse 49. So we've established that Jesus is the Christ, and then that establishes a second thing. What does that mean? It means he is a king. When the Israelites heard the word Christ, that was the first thing that came to their mind, the new David. Someone who's going to sit on the throne of Israel and, and, and purge Rome, free us from our shackles, and restore the kingdom of Israel. Nathaniel confesses Christ as king. And the best news of all of this is Jesus doesn't deny this. He affirms it. But this is where it gets good. Because as I already insinuated, Nathaniel is right that Jesus is a king. He's right about that. But where he's dead wrong is the scope and nature of that kingship. Nathaniel's understanding of Christ as king is way too narrow. It's way too small. And so Jesus is going to show to him, I am much more of a king than you ever dreamed of. But that's going to take the whole book to do. But right here, he gives them just a, a small, just a quick little shot, a quick little teaching. That if, if, he's, if he's subtle enough, he will understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is now going to elaborate on the nature of his kingship. What does it mean for Christ to be king? Who is Christ king over? Read verses 50 and 51 with me. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus is amused at this point. He finds it kind of funny that Nathanael is so impressed by such a small act of divine power. Jesus assures him, you haven't seen anything yet. You think that was impressive. You haven't seen anything yet. And so what he does then is he gives him a, a, a slight little promise. what you're getting yourself into when you follow me. And he promises that you are going to see something. You are going to be assured of something. And then Jesus brings in, he, it's, it's really fascinating. He takes two very, very popular Old Testament references and he mushes them together. And this is the promise, this kind of combined Old Testament imagery. He combines them and then gives them, not just, by the way, to Nathaniel, because um, in verse 51, the you is plural. So he stops speaking just to Nathaniel. He's speaking to all of his disciples at this point. And he promises all of them that you are going to receive something. And he, he wants to teach them through the Old Testament. So I want us to look at both of those things. The first imagery he uses comes from Genesis 28. You don't have to turn there. I, just, I have it on the screen. I'll read it for us here. Because the Son of Man is the, the thing we really want to drive home. But this is where Jesus gets this latter angel imagery. Um, this is in Genesis 28. It says, Jacob left Beersheba... And went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. 
Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head to lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your offspring. So this is where Jesus gets this latter angel imagery. Now, here's what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not telling the disciples that they're going to see the same vision that Daniel saw. He's not saying you guys are going to fall asleep one day and have this vision. He's talking about the fulfillment of what this vision means. What Jesus is telling them is that you are going to receive from heaven a divine assurance of the promises that I'm making to you. Like, you're not going to be left guessing. You're, this is not going to be a difficult puzzle for you to piece together. God is going to confirm from heaven the truth of who I am. It is going to be as if this ladder has been, ascend, has been established between earth and heaven and angels are coming up and down it, and God himself is speaking to you. You are going to receive vindication and confirmation from God himself that I am who you think I might be. So he's promising them divine confirmation, not a specific vision, but throughout his entire ministry is going to be overwhelming evidence that can only come from heaven and from God himself that Jesus truly is who he says he is. Now, who is it that Jesus is claiming to be? What's so amazing about the term we're about to look at is it's the only one that Jesus so far has claimed for himself. All the other terms have been imposed upon Jesus. I'm not saying they're wrong. We've learned a lot about Jesus in John 1. He's the Word of God. He's the Son of God. He's a rabbi. He's the Christ. But here is the title that Jesus claims for himself, verse 50, back in John. Forgive me, verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and angels of God ascending and descending on who? The Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God, yes, but he is also the Son of Man. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, this is where the other Old Testament imagery comes from. Because the, the, the term itself is actually quite broad. To be a son of man, the Bible will use that term to just simply talk about humanity. If you're a human being, you are the son of a father. If you're a human being, you are a son of man. Every person in this room is in one sense a son of man. But Jesus isn't... So, so certainly when Jesus claims this title for himself... Uh, the only person who could claim it would have to be human. A non-human entity could not claim to be the son of man because they're not a son of man. So we do have this really awesome attestation to Jesus' two natures here. He is the son of God, which is a divine title, but he is also at the same time the son of man, which is a human title. So we do have Jesus sort of revealing his, what we call the hypostatic union, his two natures here. But when he says, not that I am a son of man, but the Son of Man, he's talking about something more specific than just a human being. And his disciples know exactly what he's talking about. Because he's referencing one of the most popular chapters in all of the Old Testament, which is found in Daniel chapter 7. Let's look there ourselves. Keep your marker again in John, but turn to the prophet Daniel. Daniel is one of the major prophets, and he comes as the last major prophet, right before the minor prophets. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a very famous vision which also serves as a prophecy. In, 
The first part of his vision, he sees God the Father, whom he refers to as the Ancient of Days, which is just a really cool term to describe the Eternal One, the one who comes from the most ancient of days. And then this is the second part of his prophecy and his vision, verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. After seeing the Ancient of Days sitting on a throne of fire, he says this in beginning in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What a glorious passage that is. What a glorious prophecy and revelation that that is. So here's what the Jews had. The Jews had a long time ago a promise that some son of man would ascend into heaven before the Father. And when this human being, when this Son of Man ascends into heaven before the Father, the Father is going to crown him as the king of all the cosmos. He's going to, you, you're going to make him an eternal king over all of creation forever. So the Jews have been waiting, who is this Son of Man who's going to ascend to God the Father and be made the King over everyone? And we go back now to John. Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the Son of Man. The ladder that I described to you, I will ascend that ladder up into heaven and I will stand before the Father and He will put a crown over my head that says, King of all creation. He is promising that Nathanael and the other disciples are going to see him ascend into heaven and become the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That's what he's implying here. That's what John wants us to see. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. Now here's what I love about this text. Not only does it teach us in a subtle way through the Old Testament that the, the Lordship of Christ. It's also very instructive as how we as subjects and servants respond to the Lordship of Christ. Once we've established this pretty amazing thing, that Jesus Christ is the King of all kings, the Lord of all creation, how do you respond to a message like that? What do you do? Well, back in John, Jesus' disciples, unknowingly to them, actually give us a great pattern. The first thing you should do is follow. You should follow Him. Right? That's the primary thing we saw throughout this entire chapter. Do you see how often so-and-so followed him? Right? John and Andrew follow Jesus. And then they go and tell Peter, and now he's following Jesus. And they go and tell Philip, and now Philip is following Jesus. And then he goes and tells Nathaniel, and now Nathaniel is following Jesus. Over and over again is this, this theme that this is a guy worth following. We follow Jesus because he is king. What does it mean to follow? Right? We've... We maybe have a twisted understanding of that in the technological age, right? Because we follow people on Twitter. We follow people on Instagram. That's a very casual kind of following. When we're told in Scripture to follow Jesus, it doesn't just mean be interested in his life. Keep up on what's going on with Jesus. To follow Jesus is obedience. We obey him. We serve him. We go where he takes us. We go where he leads us. In other words, we become subjects of the king. 
We become citizens of the king. We follow and obey the king's commands. That's what they're doing here. We're following Jesus. But they do something else. We should not just follow Jesus. We should evangelize. Apparently, an appropriate response to the revelation that Jesus is Lord is this natural desire to tell people that Jesus is Lord. Because we don't just see people following Christ in this text. We see people telling everyone else that they found the guy that we need to follow. I love how this text just shows us such a normal, basic way that the kingdom of Christ expands. It expands through ordinary people telling their friends and their families and their loved ones to come follow Christ. That's what changes the world. We have a lot of gimmicks to make the gospel known. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. But at the end of the day, the primary normal way that God uses to spread the kingdom of God and change the world is for some guy named Andrew to go find his brother and say, you won't believe who I met. The primary way that we turn the world upside down is that when you encounter the king, you just can't help but tell people you will not believe who I've met. An appropriate response to the lordship of Christ is not just to follow him, but to tell other people that you're following him. To beckon them to come follow Christ. Is he good? Come and see. Is it worth it? Come and see. See for yourselves. The basic way we live as citizens in Christ's kingdom is to follow him and to beckon others to do so as well. Now, I would love to end the sermon there. I would love to conclude. We, we really have all that we need. But there's something that I just really felt compelled to address. There was a detail in the text that I think led me to this. Because I've always found it funny, as 21st century Christians, or forgive me, as 21st century American Christians, I think that sometimes thinking of Christ as king, it probably doesn't stir our affections the way it did for ancient Israel. I don't think it moves our hearts as much as it should because it's hard for us to relate to. After all, not only has no one in this room lived under a monarchy, but more than that, the entire heritage and tradition of our country comes from the position that monarchy is bad. The the DNA of our country is that kings are bad. We are here today because a bunch of people decided to rebel against the king. And then they created a system of government that's antithetical to kingship. It's impossible to have a king in America as long as you're being faithful to the Constitution. The Constitution is anti-kingdom. And so I think for most of us, we we sort of just have pre-programmed into our DNA, I don't like the sound of a king. Americans hate kings. We hate dictators. And by the way, that's kind of understandable why. Right? Our planet doesn't have a good history with kings. Most often, there's obvious exceptions, but overwhelmingly, the kings throughout history have been cruel, wicked, evil tyrants. There are just too many examples of kings and queens abusing their power to crush people for selfish gain. And this is why most of the world has actually transitioned away from monarchy. Even England, their, their, their kingdom is, is mostly at this point symbolic. Kings don't really exist today. There's a close competitor and dictators, but most of the world is transitioning away from this because we all see kings don't do their job very well. And it's really dangerous to give these evil people unilateral power. 
And so I think that our culture maybe loses some of our gospel presentation because it doesn't really sound like good news when we go and tell them that they need to bow their knee to a king. Right? How is it good news? What is the good news of the gospel? To go around and tell people that there's an eternal dictator who can't go away? That's the gospel? There's a big dictator in the sky who won't go away? That's supposed to be good news to Americans? I don't think John wants us to think of Christ as an eternal dictator or as a tyrant. And I think he's really going to expand upon throughout the rest of his gospel that, yeah, Christ is king, but he's not like the other kings that you're accustomed to. He's a different breed. This is a different kind of king. And, and, and like I said, that's going to be elaborated on. You're going to see that over the course of John. But it's hinted at here. He, again, John is planting seeds right now. There, there is a reminder, even in this text, that we're not dealing with the kind of kings that we're used to dealing with. And I want to show you where it is. Look at verses 45 and 46 with me. It's just a, a little foretaste of the kind of king we're about to be introduced to. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus' humility is shown in the place that he was raised. Right? The glorious, eternal Son of God first showed his humility just in the incarnation itself. It doesn't matter where he was born or where he lived. Just the fact that God became man is, is a kind of humiliation, a kind of humbleness that we can't even fathom. We will never comprehend the humility of Christ. Not in its fullness. But we, we, we can, as best as we can perceive it, that the Creator would become creature. That, that, is, that is remarkable. But Christ takes his humility even further. Because he didn't just become a man. He became a man and chose to be identified forever with a town where nothing good comes from. He chose to forever be Jesus of Nazareth. You would think at least, okay, you'd think like if I were Jesus, okay, wow, this is a... Uh, this is, this is pretty embarrassing. I've got to become a man. Um, I, I'll, I'll at least make sure people know, like, I'm special. I, I want to be born in, a, in an important place. I'm going to be born in a golden bed. I'm going to be born in a castle. I'm going to, be, I'm, I'm going to make sure people know I'm not just any man, right? That's how most kings would operate. And Jesus could have chosen an option like that. For example, he could have been Jesus of Bethlehem. He was born there after all. And Bethlehem had a good reputation. It's David's royal city. Jesus could have told people, well, I, know, I know my parents raised me in Nazareth, unfortunately, but that's not where I, I'm a Bethlehemite. I'm from Bethlehem. I'm from David's city. But he didn't take on Bethlehem as an identity. Perhaps in eternity he could have worked it out so that he would be born in Jerusalem. Zion. The capital of God's people. The place of the temple, the holy city. Jesus of Jerusalem. But no, he chose not to. He maybe even could have been born to some very wealthy Jewish people living in Rome. Rome, after all, at this day and age, was the world's superpower. The capital of the whole world. The symbolism of domination and power and riches. He could have come from the great city of Rome. Jesus of Rome. But no, he's not Jesus of Rome. 
He's not Jesus of Jerusalem. He's not Jesus of Bethlehem. He's Jesus of Nazareth, where nothing good comes from. Jesus says, Nazareth sounds like a city made for a king. How many kings do you know would do something like that? Because here's the thing. This wasn't a temporary thing. Jesus has been branded the Nazarene forever. This is never going away. And I can prove it to you. Let me show you how even after his ascension, how much his place of origin was important to his identity. The Apostle Paul is arrested at the end of the book of Acts and he's being tried before the Jewish elders for all of his troublemaking uh, in front of the Jewish uh, by a man named Tertullus. And notice what he says. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Christians were not thought of as Christians in Paul's day. They were a cult from Nazareth. Makes sense. Nothing good comes from that town anyway. Makes sense that a plague, a cult, would come from there. The Christians were the cult group from that disgusting city that even Galileans didn't like. They're associated with the Nazarene. And you think, well, that was 2,000 years ago. Things have changed by now. But I promise you they haven't. For example, I'm wearing a bracelet today from an organization known as Voice of the Martyrs. I don't know if you're familiar with Voice of the Martyrs. It's a Christian persecution group. It's an organization that sort of makes known Christian persecution happening around the world. The untold stories of the persecuted church. And they raise money to try to help um, Christians who are being persecuted. And a while back, they started this campaign known as the IMN campaign. IMN. They called people to identify themselves with the letter N. I am N. Now, why did they do this? Right? That sounds kind of bizarre. Well, at the time, in northern Iraq, ISIS had just become a big thing. And so they sent out this edict demanding that Christ followers either convert to Islam or leave the region. So it was conversion or banishment. And if they chose neither, they were put to death. Right? So they were given three options. Convert, leave, or die. And they displaced hundreds of thousands of Christians during this time. Now, the question is, when you're living in this large region, how do you know who are the Christ followers, right? When, when, when you send the government officials to go check and make sure that the Christians have either left or, or repented, where do you go? So what they did is they went through all these different towns with spray paint, and they went to Christian homes, and they went to Christian businesses, and they spray painted a marking on these businesses that would identify this is a Christian business or this is a Christian home. And you know what marking they, they put on? It wasn't a cross. They were not being identified as a cross. It wasn't a Jesus fish. It wasn't how they were identified. They put this on there. This is the Arabic symbol for the letter N. They put a big capital N on these houses, on these buildings. Why N? Because you want to know how ISIS thought of Christians? They followed the guy from Nazareth. They follow the king from Nazareth. Not from Rome. Not from Constantinople. Not from Persia. Not from America. Not from any great superpower from Nazareth. Jesus chose to identify himself with the lowly, despicable city. That's the kind of king we're inviting people to follow. He's not like other kings. He's gracious. 
He's humble. He's kind. As a matter of fact, it is his very humility, it is his very kindness that God decided this is why you're worthy to be king. You're worthy to be king because of your humility and your obedience and your servitude. And this is exactly what Paul tells us. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Forgive me, I don't have it on the screen. But turn to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. If you get to Colossians, gone too far. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 3 through 11 with me and see how crucial the goodness, the graciousness, the humility of Christ is to his exaltation as the king. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not only to your own interests, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For Paul, humility, selflessness, obedience, these are the things that characterize Jesus. And this is why God crowned him King of Kings. He is not an angry, selfish, dictator, tyrant. He is the humble, selfless king. The good and gracious king. And I think that this final qualification will help us summarize what the point of our sermon is today. What is John trying to tell us? He's trying to tell you this, that Jesus Christ is a king worth following. There have been a lot of kings in history not worth following. Christ is not among their number. This is the king worth following. He is good, he is gracious, he is kind, he is humble. When you submit to the Lordship of Christ, you do not approach a cruel tyrant. You submit to the loving reign of a good and gracious king.